Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking a life of freedom, choice, and abundance. And joining me on the episode today was a very special guest, Casper uh, Roxburgh. Now, he is uh, verging on a polymath. He's a scientist, researcher, app developer, storyteller, podcaster, author, world music DJ, and he's also a deep, deep thinker. Now, full disclosure, Casper is actually a... a former client of Dashdot. And so he shares a little bit of that story about how that experience went. But it, the real the real crux and the meat of this episode is whether uh, it was super impactful and super valuable and actually thoroughly, thoroughly entertaining. We talked about stuff like navigating the millennial life crisis, building wealth ethically, how to approach uh, long-term thinking from a millennial perspective. We spoke uh, at length about the three circles of ethical impact, which is a very interesting thought paradigm for you to apply in your own life and so, so much more. I personally got a lot out of this uh, episode and I'm, I'm really looking forward to getting Casper back on again. I know that you're going to enjoy it too. Now, this is, this is an interesting one because we definitely took a millennial perspective and you'll understand why when you listen to the episode. Casper has a unique perspective on the... Uh, millennial psychology based around what he does and what, how he's been applying his interests over the past few years. So I know that's going to be very interesting. So to that degree, if you are a millennial, this is going to be a really great episode for you. Now, a millennial is anyone who's like 24 to 40 years old, roughly. Uh, 1980 to 2000, is you were born in those years. So it's a pretty broad, broad bucket, but I think there's going to be some interesting nodes in there that you will really resonate with challenges that you've potentially faced and had to try and overcome, whether they be emotional, perceived, uh, real, all of that kind of stuff. So super impactful. If you're not a millennial and you're thinking, oh, I'm going to tune out, I would caution you against that thinking. And I would suggest that this might be a really great opportunity to get an insight into the views and perspectives of what is becoming the most influential generation on the planet. So I'd, I'd encourage you to check it out. Now, if you like this episode, if you've liked other episodes, and if you like having the dulcet tones of myself, Gabby, and a multitude of guests in your ears, and you want to share that with other people as well, then please do, because it's really, really important for us. We've got a big mission here at the Investor Lab, and we want to connect with as many people as possible. So make sure you share this, like it, send it to a friend, somebody else that could benefit, maybe another millennial who's trying to navigate um, the heady world of personal wealth and all of the other kind of stuff that goes along with it too. Also, please subscribe, rate, review, do all the stuff, get involved. And of course, if you want to know more, if you want more opportunities to engage more deeply with us in a multitude of ways, just head to theinvestorlab.com.au to see all of the different ways that we can help you, support you, guide you on your personal wealth creation journey. I hope you have a great listening experience and I will see you on the inside. Hello and welcome. Joining me on the Investor Lab today is a very special guest. He is not only a scientist, a researcher, an app developer, a storyteller, a podcaster, an author, and a world music DJ. He's also a millennial and he has a unique perspective on some things that I want to tackle today. So including the navigating the millennial life crisis, building wealth ethically, and all of that kind of stuff. Welcome to the show, Casper Roxburgh. G'day guys. Thanks for having me. 
Mate, it's an absolute pleasure. So let's, I want to just tackle something uh, very early on. Now, for those who, uh, for those who don't uh, know, you run a podcast called Binge Thinking, which incidentally, I was actually a guest on your podcast multiple years ago when I was in a very, very different place in my life. So it's been interesting to have this connectivity with you uh, on two sides of what has been a very transformational journey for myself. But I really want to kind of dig in. Like, what is the Binge Thinking podcast? And what's it all about? Because, and what is the, the millennial life crisis? Yeah, so, uh, I mean, basically what happened was I was living overseas about five years ago um, in Japan and I got really stuck in the podcast around that time, the long format, uh, having the space to be able to have these deep uh, conversations really worked for me. And I was looking for uh, more, you know, I was ravenous. I just wanted to find more content, more interesting podcasts, interesting people. And I found it really hard to... Uh, identify any podcasts, well, particularly from Australia. They were all very US dominant at the time. Uh, but also, I couldn't find anything with young people. And I was really interested in hearing from people my own age about what they were doing. I wanted to hear people like me. I wanted to hear people that were thinking about the big things in their life. And so after some conversations with friends, I just thought, I'm going to start that show. I'm going to start that show. I'm going to start a show that is about interesting people, but they have to be young because I want their perspective on the issues that matter to them, um, where they're going to take a longer-term view of what it is that they care about. They're going to look at it fundamentally in a different way than somebody who's equal, you know, brilliant, no doubt, but, you know, 40, 50, 60 years old at the height of their career. So that's, that's kind of the show. It's <laughs> okay, that, that, that's cool. And I totally empathize with that because actually one of, the, um, one of the driving forces behind us starting our podcast, this show, The Investor Lab, is because whilst there is a um, a suite of um, property podcasts um, out there in the world, even Australian property podcasts, I tend to find that they are all quite boring and they all just kind of tackle the same like, oh yeah, let's talk about the markets and all of that kind of stuff. And they don't talk about the story. They don't talk about the principles and the values. And I think mm. that, that that's kind of why we say. So I totally um, uh, resonate with you on that front. But I just want to pick something you said there. You wanted to communicate with young people because they were going to take a longer-term view that someone that is, say, 45, a boomer, let's just... let's just yeah, call basket. it what it is. Let's call it what it is. <laughs> Millennials versus boomers. That's going to be the title of the podcast. No, maybe not. Um, so, <laughs> but what I find interesting about that comment is that it is impossible in some ways for a millennial. So let's just quickly basket millennials. Millennials yeah. are, what, 24 to 40 years old now, right? Yeah, it's like anyone born uh, between 1980 and 2000 is the common yeah, definition. Yeah. yeah, awesome. So I'm squarely in that category and yeah. uh, so are you and so is mm-hmm. heaps of us, right? And it's interesting because as uh, not to sound morbid and morose, but as the boomers die off, millennials are the biggest generation. But that's a <laughs> statistical fact. And it's very interesting because what's, what that's changing is um, the psychographic shifts in uh, purchasing, and that actually has massive impacts on things like real estate. But uh, back to my point, how can someone who is 30 years old take a long-term view if the view on life should be taken over a 90-year perspective? Let's just use that as a time, as a time continuum. And they've only experienced 30% of that. How can they possibly, because if you think, oh my God, I feel so, you know, you hit 30, and you're like, oh my God, I'm so old. 
right? Yeah. And then all of a sudden, when you're like, just in the same way that when I hit 20, I thought I was old. Now at 30, I'm like, oh my God, I was a, I was a baby. So yeah. how, can you, how, can you, how can you approach that dichotomy of looking forward but having no context of time? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I think the first obvious point to make is if you're 30 and you're taking a 90-year lifespan, then you're 30% of the way through your life. Um, and 30% is probably enough experience to get a handle of things. I think most people feel when they turn 30, all right, like, you know, I've done my 20s. I've been an, I've been an adult independent for maybe 10 years of my life um, to more or less of a degree. Uh, it's time for me to start thinking about what, I'm, what am I really doing? You know, that's an obvious thing that really comes into play. You don't know everything, but you've probably figured out enough time making some decisions. And you've also got the experience of time to understand what time can do for you. And that's really, really important. Yeah, but okay. And I don't want to get stuck on this point, but I am very interested in it. If we take that same time horizon and we say 30 and then we divide that into three parts and then we go, okay, well, let's look at the first 30% of that, which is zero to 10, mm. Right. Given, given the perspective on time, when you got to 10, you were a big boy. Yeah. You're a big boy now. Yeah. So, and, I'm, and I'm certain that at that point, you know, you, you're having feelings of independence and you're like, I've got, all this, I've got this stuff nailed, right, to a degree. So there is, well, I guess my point is that you can only ever know what you know within the context of what you have, have lived. So how do you take a long-term view? Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. The 10-year-old thing doesn't really work, though, because you're still developing physiologically. So I'd, I'd box that one. Like, I think the first <laughs> 20 years of your life, you're actually growing into a fully formed human that can make uh, clear decisions in the way that an adult can, right? So you've probably got the last 10 years is the real one. How do you make those decisions? Time's going to change. Everything's going to be different. But I think the wake-up call, is, it's, it's more about like taking advantage of the opportunity rather than being fully competent and able to make the best decisions. The reality is that people understand that their life is going to last for more than 10 more years. Um, and by the time you get to 30, you've kind of worked out a lot of your uh, naive <laughs> ideas perhaps uh, about the world. And so you're in a position to start going, okay, maybe I need to question some things that I assumed about myself, about my life, about who I thought I was, and about what I thought was going to happen when I became an adult and I got all this freedom. And you've also got the opportunity to, uh, to leverage the success that you've already made because you've had about 10 years of working life as well. And it's, it's kind of, that's, that's part of it. Yeah. Yes, I, I agree, but I also simultaneously disagree, and I'll tell you why. Um, because because we only have the context of time over a pretty finite time span, and we don't fully, we can't. It's virtually impossible for us to fully grasp uh, the depth and complexity of what lays before us. And there's a there's a Marcus Aurelius quote, which you know, life is but a chasm of of opportunity waiting ahead and all this kind of stuff. Anyway, so you, you can never understand the depth and the length, breadth and depth of the chasm that lays before you. But you can, as you said, oh, look, I'm probably going to live for at least another 10 years. But the problem with that thinking is that it's actually quite, it, it stimulates a short-term action bias. And I am guilty of this, which is why I wanted to bring this up from mm. a millennial perspective, because... In life, I am all what I, I have, and I am transitioning in my thinking and my beliefs and my structures and my ideas. Um, I have had a bias to I need it all now, right? 
I don't want to do something now that may yield me a result when I'm 60 because what if I don't even make it to 60? I, that's 30 years away. I don't, let's just say I'm 30 years old. I'm not. I'm a bit older than 30 now. But let's just use that for a, from a perspective. Do you not think that it kind of is almost a problem that younger people, bucketing them loosely as millennials, uh, because they can't see far enough into the future time horizon, that stimulates thinking about getting short-term results as, a plo- as opposed to applying long-term consistency? Yeah, look, uh, I mean, there's definitely short-term thinking out there. I actually don't think that's the problem. Like, just coming back to where we started, you know, for the audience, like, I've been interviewing people under 35 of all different careers, backgrounds, everything, people, you know, scientists, people doing PhDs, all the way to self-taught furniture makers um, and people that started their own businesses. I've been doing that for three years and the one of the big themes that's come out for me is it's about the narrative. It's not so much that people are unable to think long-term. I think it's that we've been fed a certain story about our lives as a generation, about the opportunities that we have. So the classic one relating to this is you're never going to be able to buy your own home. Our housing prices are too high. Um, you're spending all your money on avos and, uh, you know, the relative to salaries, houses are unaffordable, boomers are buying them all, uh, negative gearing. It's not going to happen for you. So just forget about it, Right. Um, And so that leads to, I think, a fear. And the fear is around if I look, I will be confirming that story and then my life is never going to be what I thought it could be. I'm not going to be able to achieve those things. So there's, there's a story and in that story comes fear, which leads to avoidance. And, and like I use the example of the house because it's, it's, it's a really clear, obvious one. It's one that your audience can be familiar with, but you can apply it to lots of different things. I'm never going to get that promotion. I'm never going to get tenure. I'm never going to be able to move up. I'm going to be stuck in the low wage job for the rest of my life because the, the boomers are going to stay in, in work and just keep those high end positions up until they're 90 plus. Uh, and it's, and the whole system is just geared against me, you know, and, and with that comes a kind of continuing, uh, prolonged childhood where you don't quite feel like an adult, you're an imposter. The amount of guests that have been on my show think saying that they have imposter syndrome, you hear these people, they're phenomenally successful, they're brilliant, and they go, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing, and, you know, like I just can't believe that I'm even on this show, you know, <laughs> that's that sort of thing. So yeah. I think it's more about, it's about fear, it's about avoidance, um, and it's about the kind of story that we've been told about our lives and what it's, what we can achieve as a generation. Yeah, that's that's great. That is great, and I I, I do one hundred percent agree with you because the, and that ties in actually with what we were saying about uh, timeline story and all of this kind of stuff because there is a conceptualization about the identity of who they are and all of that kind of stuff. And you touched on a really really great point there, and and this is something that has um, plagued me. So as a millennial, as someone who for for over fifteen years built a career and a lifestyle in what is ostensibly a uh, a very left of center uh, world being festivals and events and all of that kind of stuff. When I made a personal uh, development transition into having an interest in real estate, it was, it was, it was like I was, it was like I was doing something wrong. Yeah. It was like yeah. I was doing something wrong. And I was like trying to talk to people about it. I was like, no, 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 no. I think this is actually a really good thing to do guys. Yeah. And, and to this day, to this day, people uh, view what I'm doing as uh, unethical, immoral, 
uh, all of that kind of stuff. So how do you, as from your experience with, take, with looking at the millennial perspective and your particular perspective, how have you overcome that story that we tell ourselves and that we've been told that A, we'll never achieve, we'll never be able to buy our own home and building a property portfolio is for rich boomers anyway, so it's a negative thing. And if you start mm. to approach that uh, personal wealth building journey using real estate, you're a bad person. How do you overcome that? Well, I think, yeah, and just to give a touch more context. So I think that story that I was outlining and you just explained, it, it, it spilled over to something bigger, which is uh, making money and being successful is wrong. That there's something ethically wrong. There's something unethical about being successful financially. Uh, and that's connected as well to things like climate change, that all the money in the world has been made off the back of, you know, environmental pollution, uh, you know, taking advantage of poor people, that sort of thing. So it's, it's broader than just real estate in Australia, right? Oh, yeah. You know, oh, it yeah. really is. And that's where the issue really creeps in because it's, on the one hand, yeah, you know, you tell your friends, yeah, I'm looking at buying a property or something and they're just, oh, yeah, you know, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be a, a landlord and, you know, you're, gonna, you're, you're getting on top. You're getting on top of the system. So, uh, you know, you cop it. You do. I mean, there's, I'm exactly the same. And to this day, it's the same situation, but you're fine. How did I make the transition, I guess, to come to your question? I think a couple of things. So, firstly, you've got to be willing to be real with yourself. Right, you've got to be willing to look at. There's a great quote from I think it's Jim Collins, the guy that wrote Good to Great, a really interesting, um, you know, business scholar. Um, he said the successful businesses they're willing to confront the brutal fact. Right. So step one, get real. Right. Um, you, okay, you and I, we live in Australia. We live in a modern, liberal, democratic, capitalist society. Now. This is kind of a, you know, don't hate the player, hate the game situation. But you've got to <laughs> recognise that this is a system that's been largely successful in giving people prosperity and wealth. Okay, we can have a whole discussion on that, but I'm not going to go there, right? For myself, it's about recognising... Can of worms. Can of worms. Yeah, can of worms. I'm causing it, right? Um, but for myself, I think I realised, look, this is the system. It's not necessarily fair in every way. There are ways that some people make money... Uh, you know, do, working really hard, they don't make much money and some people are working hard but in different ways and maybe make more money. Look, it's that, that's, that's the context. I don't control that. But I can work within that system to succeed and then the question becomes how do I channel that success, right? It's a separate thing, right? There's, there's a function of success and then there's an outcome of that success. Just because you're making money doesn't mean that there's something you've done wrong. Firstly, you can you can make money in ways that are ethical. You can deliberately avoid those unethical ways of making money. Um, you can, you know, so, you know, stop me if I'm going too far here, Goose, but, you know, you got, the way I look at it, you, you know, you start with your job, right? You got your job, okay? You can make a decision about your job. You know, if you're working for British American Tobacco, you, you can probably ask yourself in the morning, you know, what exactly does my work that I dedicate my eight hours a day do? What am I full, What am I pushing forward into the world? What, what outcomes are, are coming out of this? You know, you, we know bad, you know, poor health outcomes for people, right? Addiction, problems, real genuine life suffering, right? Now, without going into a consequentialist, you know, everything causes some sort of suffering butterfly effect situation. You, you draw that contrast with, say, you know, someone who decides that they want to work in healthcare, right? 
a bit more, you know, clear cut morally. Like there are decisions that you can make about what you do for your work that makes you a salary that leads you to maybe say, okay, I feel like I'm making money, but I'm doing it in a way that's ethical. Yes, I'm getting paid. Yes, it's not perfect, but I've made a conscious decision that the, the things I'm going to dedicate my life to, I would like them to have a clear positive outcome for the world. That's, that's the first part of making money, your salary, right? You start making a bit of money, saving a bit of money, then the question becomes, okay, I've got a bit of, got a, bit of a bank here, what am I gonna do with that? That's where the investment story comes in. And this is where the, there's the whole, any way of making money outside of a salary is evil. Well, it's not, you know, there are ethical, ethically managed funds out there, for example, where they deliberately look for companies that are pushing green technology, that uh, they, they treat their workers well, um, that they don't make money off firearms, they don't make money off tobacco, and you you can you can invest in those with a hundred bucks. You know, there's a this is the thing. Everyone's afraid to look at the information out there because they're afraid of what they'll find. They're afraid of confirming the narrative. The reality is that there are opportunities. You don't even need to be rich. I'm not talking about somebody with thirty thousand dollars in their bank account being able to invest. It. Ooh, you know, I'm talking a hundred dollars. You know, it's a difference between putting your money in a savings account or putting it into something that's actually going to work for you, but do so with a deliberate ethical responsibility in mind. And, and they make money. They make money. And then you, can, you know, then you can look at other kinds of investments as well, like getting to a stage where you can buy property. And this is where I love what you guys do. Uh, I love you know, the message that you give, especially in this, in this show, in the Investor Lab, about service, right? Owning a property, firstly, the term landlord, I think, is, you know, it's, it's a bit it's a bit mixed. I mean, this idea of a lord over someone, you know, I don't particularly like, I prefer property owner. But as a property owner, you know, you're you're serving people, you're providing someone with shelter. And they're yes, they're paying you for it, but you're also paying for the ability to give it to them. It's an exchange of goods and you can take that responsibility seriously. You don't have to be a landlord that jacks up the rent every single opportunity that you get. You don't have to be a landlord that refuses to spend any money on making the house more livable, right? And I, everyone, no matter what their budget, deserves the dignity of decent housing. You know, the, this idea that like, oh, you can't afford to live in a decent home because you don't have the money, that's rubbish, you know? Yeah. And, and you can be a landlord, not a landlord, a property owner, <laughs> And you, can, you, can, you can also be a landlord too, because I would just say that your reaction to that word mm. uh, is, um, I guess, a really great representation of some of the negative connotations that get associated with language patterns that actually, that like there is, look, we don't, we don't live in feudal England. Uh, you did, we're like, I'm not a lord, right? But we can use mm. that terminology and it, we should be able to detach the negative bias um, I agree with you. It does have a negative bias, but it's also just—it's also just a vernacular terminology. So it is. Yeah. I mean, you could go either way. I'm not going to tell. Yeah. You know, I'm not policing yeah, language. It's not. Yeah. It's not. It's not syntax class. But but, okay. but but I think you know it's it's about the intent, right? I'm just making a point here about intent. So just yeah, bring it all back to your question. How did I make the transition? <laughs> yeah, you know, this is what I do. Uh, how do I make the transition? I guess the the key thing is that one, you got to recognize the game you're living in. And you've got to re be real with yourself that you're not going to change that, but that you can make it work for the greater good. So there's the money making, how you make money, is it ethically made, right? And then the last part is what do you do with that money? What do you do with that, right? Mm. And that's the key question. That is the key question. That is the key question. And I think that that is uh, a question that a lot of people don't 
take the time to ask themselves. And because also a lot of people think that ethical, like building ethical wealth means you have to give it all away. Like, like there's this kind of, like people don't understand, um, I think, how to apply ethics, morality, vision, principle thinking, all of that kind of stuff to their own journey in a meaningful way. So when I think about ethics, there's circles, you know, that radiate out from the center. Now, in the center is personal, like your personal situation, okay? There is affluence, opulence, all these kind of different things. You've got to find out where your sweet spot is, like what you're aiming for and what's going to be good for you and why and like and, and analyze the ethics around that scenario. Then you've got like family and friends and you've got that kind of circle there. Then you've got community and then you've got philanthropy and you've got these kind of circles of which you can go out and you can try and tackle all the circles on a small budget so you could be like, okay, cool. And it was totally fine, right? Listen, mm. I've got a hundred bucks. Um, so I'm going to spend uh, 20 bucks on myself, 20 bucks on something for my family, uh, 20 bucks on, um, you know, something in the community. And I'm going to donate 10, uh, 20 bucks. Well, I haven't even done the maths on that, but you know, you get the <laughs> point to a, to a global charity or something. Yeah. Um, then there's, so there's different ways of, of looking at it. Cause I think a lot of people make the mistake of thinking, oh, well, if I want to be ethical, that, that means that I must basically live like Mother Teresa and give away all of my money all of the time. Otherwise, it's unethical. And I think that that is uh, incorrect thinking. But I think a lot of people don't think about it in that kind of cycle. So one of the things I wanted to ask you though, you kind of touched on it. So full disclosure for the listeners. Now, we had, we actually, Casper came to work with us at Dashta in our buyer's agency service. You know, we had known each other previously because mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, I was on the Binge Thinking podcast myself. But I'm interested to know like, what the transition point was for you. So where were you, like where were where had you gotten to on your journey in life that made you think, okay, now is the time to invest? But then also what actually what actually made you want to like work with us or anyone? Like what made you want to like transition to like, okay, I'm gonna go use a buyer's agent? Yeah, it's it's a really good question. Um so yeah basically just come you know relating it back to my last point so i'd been saving my money i'd been investing in basically managed funds um which were ethical investments and um you know everything was going fine um but obviously uh one of the basics of investment is that you should have a diverse investment portfolio you know manage risk that sort of thing and that i i would i wanted it was kind of one of my goals i was like i need to diversify i don't want all my money in one place effectively and i'd always known about property my parents had made good money buying houses fixing them up as we'd been growing up um you know so that that had been part of my life so i was aware of that and obviously you can't be australian and not be aware that you know property prices go up and there's there's money to be made in that. And I've been thinking about it for, for a long time, right? So I got to the point where I was like, okay, I think I've got enough money to get into this game, um, but I want to do it smart, right? I'm a scientist. I wanted to be data-driven, evidence-based. I, I was not looking to buy a house that I wanted to live in one day. And pretty much everyone I knew, everyone I spoke to, they're like, Oh well, you got to buy in this place because oh, that's where you grew up, or or why would you, you wouldn't want to live in that house, or don't buy that, or whatever. And I was just thinking that's that's the wrong way to make this decision, right? You got to understand your goals. So I decided, you know, and I was working with my mum on this one. We were going to work on, you know, we were going to invest together, right? Just you know, so I wasn't buying it by myself. Um, and so we decided, okay, we're going to do this data-driven. We're going to pull the data from ABS. We're going to look at incomes, all this sort of stuff. So we started working on it. And 
um, I'm a busy person. You know, I work full time. I've got my podcast, I've got my DJing, I've got my creative projects, I'm social. She's busy. She's running, you know, fixing up houses, doing stuff like that. So it's six months, eight months, and there's basically no progress. There's no progress. And in the meantime, I'm seeing all the, you know, stuff about Dashdot online. And, and, and what I noticed was that there was a genuine alignment in the approach or the methods. So there was a question around what's the philosophy, but then also there was the methods. It was data-driven. It was based in think, like looking at the stats, looking at where's the best place for you based on your budget and where you're going, where can you put your money to a property that's going to be cash flow positive, you know, it's the big one you guys always talk about. And I saw all that and I, I connected with it and I thought, you know what, I think these guys are basically doing what we're doing, but they're doing it really well and we're doing it really badly. And, and the, to take a step back from that, like what's the logic here? So in life, you put your faith in professionals every day. We all do this, right? You get onto a plane, you're putting your life in the hands of the pilot. You're, you're, there's nothing more valuable, more important, more precious than your life, right? And we put our lives in the hands of others all the time, doctors, pilots, even Uber drivers, right? Okay, all the time. When it comes to money, there's this idea out there that everyone's going to scam you, right? And, and there, are, there are people that you've got to be you know, cautious around. But professionals that work transparently, are generally trying to do the right thing. And so my, my philosophy on this was like, time is money. I don't have the time to do this. I've had a crack myself. I haven't made any progress. Here's a group of people that are doing this. They're doing it professionally. They're doing it well, probably better than I could ever hope to do it. And then it becomes a risk, sorry, a return on investment question. You know, what, what am I losing by waiting another year to find a property in terms of potential growth? And what, you know, what would I be willing to pay to, to, to capture that and to not have to deal with an enormous amount of the admin and the hassle and everything like that and be distracted from my work, which I'm good at. I don't need to become a property expert, you know, <laughs> to be able to do this. So that was kind of the logic. That's how I came to, to, to you guys, to Dashdot, and what, what the idea was behind that. That's fascinating insight. I really appreciate it. One of the things I'm really enjoying about this conversation is um, the depth and articulation of your your thoughts. I, I really, really appreciate it. That's um that's good. Okay, so like you know, well, that's good. Appreciate that. That's wonderful. My next question is, how do you? Now we've done this journey, right? We've bought we bought the house. Like yeah. it's it's all good. Yeah. And understanding um the pathway that you took to get there, how do you measure? Firstly, what was your metric of success? How do you? Uh, how does how does your experience weigh up against that? And what like how does this play into your long term thinking? Yeah, so I guess the metric of success was one get get in the game, right? That was there was a big kind of there's a big zero to one, you know, barrier here. Like uh, people like uh, we had someone on my podcast a while ago say, you know, ideas are free. It's all in the execution. And it is, and it is, right? And that's often where people fall down. So just the execution itself for me was probably the number one thing. Um, I'm, you know, I've got a reasonable appetite for risk. But the, the house was exactly the kind of investment in terms of the price range. You know, the experience was positive. 
Um, I got, you know, everything got lined up. The, the property is cash flow positive. I'm seeing that now. So, I mean, it's, it's early. Like I, I picked, you know, I settled on this property in February this year. So, you know, it's, it's a very early stage to be able to assess how it's performing, but it's successful. And I guess the, the, one of the big things was that we had tenants in from, from day one and they're happy and we're happy and it all seems to be working out. Like there's no one's losing in this situation. Um, so yeah, that's that. That's probably a bit about the success. And it's for me, it's often like my mentality is very much set and forget. Like I do take a long term view. You know, with market fluctuations like they are at the moment, I'm like I don't, I don't really care. You know, I don't. I'm I'm 31 years old. I've got a job. I've got a salary. I don't have debt obligations that are going to wreck me. I don't really need to think about this, and that's better that I don't. So that's kind of just my own personal approach to investing. That makes you know just to explain why I. You know, I'm like, yeah, look, you know, we'll see, but it's it's fine. It's working well. Where am I going? I mean, the obvious place is is further along the journey. I mean, this is step one. You know, I, I bought a, a, an affordable house. You know, it was only a couple of hundred thousand. We're not talking about a half million dollar property even, and it's certainly not in like a massive major capital city or anything like that. I wanted to start small get a taste of things, learn the lay of the land. And can, I, can, I, can I also point out that one of your key characteristics was actually to it was actually with an, like an environmental lens over it. One of the characteristics yeah. around how you were going to define if this was in the right place, aside, yeah. from all the, uh, aside from all the barrier metrics about demography, psychography, and all of that other kind of stuff, was climate change. Yeah. Well, this one really came from my mum, uh, you know, but uh, basically she... We'd be doing, it was around the summer of the bushfires, black summer. So it was on the front of our minds. And, you know, she said, look, I don't want to, uh, I don't believe in housing that doesn't have long-term sustainability around climate change. Like the climate is changing. We just read a report saying, you know, Brisbane is going to be so hot in summer in 20 years time. It's going to be uninhabitable. Like that came out of the University of Queensland. Uh, you know, people. I'm not giving any specific advice here to people who are listening. It's just, just that that was the concept. It's like, is there bushfire risk? Is there flood risk? Those sorts of things, right? But taking that, taking that quite seriously, um, and and you know, we gave that to you guys, and you guys, I think, loved the brief. To be honest, you seemed to be really into it, which is great, and and that was part of what was factored in in the search. So. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I appreciate that. And I would just point out that the thing that excites me and interests me the most, the absolute precipice of what gets me excited is when there is a unique proposition. Where, you know, when it's like, you know, either it's like, okay, I've got something a little left of center. Like, how do we approach that? Because that appeals to my my problem solving, creative yeah. thinking. And I'm like, oh, okay, how do we apply, how do we apply data to some completely new uh, associated outcomes, desires, and all of that kind of stuff. So, personally, I th- thought it was really interesting. I want to, I want to just um, kind of take this on a slightly tangential perspective because there's a few, um, there's a few things that you've mentioned in the course of this conversation that I would be, I would be remiss if I didn't at least approach it. A, a quote from Jim Collins. Really appreciated that. You've obviously done a lot of work on your mindset. Um, your like, there's a, there's a lot going on in there, and you seem robust in your thinking. So, I've got a few questions that I that I've jotted down through the course of this conversation that I want to ask, and I want to get your perspective on. Mm-hmm. I am mindful of time, so let's try yeah. and like, I want to let's let's keep try, it tight. let's keep trying to keep it tight. <laughs> but I mean, like, what 
tell me a little bit about how you, on your personal journey, have gone about developing, um, you know, your mindset, your goal setting, mm. consistency. Mm. How have you? How have you approached that kind of personal wealth, personal personal wealth, personal growth journey? Yeah. Um Another great question could go on for hours. Uh, keeping it brief, I guess I'm a big reader. Um, I really believe in reading as a way of learning and thinking. So I've got four or five books by, beside my bed at any given time. Um, as I mentioned before, podcasts, mad for podcasts, but I like I like information. I don't read fiction. I read nonfiction only. I listen to podcasts that are informational. I don't listen to story podcasts or true crime or whatever. I, I just I just soak up information. I love learning about things. I love discussing them with people. And that's just what could be a theme all my life. And those are the mediums that I'm probably using the most at the moment. Outside of that, mindset-wise, um, I'm a meditator. I'm not a great meditator by any stretch, um, but I, I meditate. I suck. I suck yeah, at meditating. Just, the thing is, it doesn't matter if you suck, you still get the benefit. And, I, and I've seen how it helps me in my work, it helps me in my personal life. So I do it. I just, I just do it all the time. And it, that leads to a lot of reflection, a lot of questioning. Then the other thing I'm trying to do more of at the moment is, um, is consciously asking myself, what's my vision in my life across multiple facets of my life? And then if that's my vision, what does it take to get there? What are the actions that I need to take to get to that place? And then sitting down and going, okay, so when am I going to do those things? And this comes back to that theme around, but be real with yourself, you know? Um, and I've been doing this not just myself, but actually with friends and, you know, family members, people with businesses that want to work on a particular idea, sitting down with them and just saying, okay, one of the problems I think we have is that we, we tend to labor under the impression that we should be achieving a lot more than we are. But it really helps to sit down and go, okay, well, if these are the things you think you should be achieving, you're smart, you know what it takes, what is it, you know, you define for yourself, what is it going to take? And then sit down and start allocating time and all of a sudden you realize, oh, geez, I actually, I'm actually trying to achieve a lot more than I've got time for and I have to start prioritizing. And that, it's just being fair to yourself. And so I, I do, I'm starting to do a lot more of that as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's a really good, being fair to yourself is a really big thing because I am uh, I am horrible for it. Like I'll yeah. be like, I'm gonna do like ten billion different things, and then when I don't achieve them, I'm a failure. And that mm. you know, and then it's and then so then it's really become about going, okay, well, how do I prioritize? Like, what is what is? And then how does this actually fit in with a long term plan? And, and the natural mm. extension of trying to basically avoid failure, avoiding that feeling of failure, which is really important, I think. It, the process of trying to avoid that feeling of failure dictates that you must set clear yeah. definitive outcomes that you're aiming for and they must mm. have a reason like they must yeah. have a validation because otherwise you're gonna feel like a failure yeah and so yeah. if you don't want to feel like a failure you've got to get real about this you know yeah. and you've got to connect it to your values and 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 it comes back as again to this point you made before about short-term thinking right everyone wants it to happen. yeah but i want it to happen now sit down and actually talk about what it would take to get something done you'll realize there's a reason why it's not going to happen right now mm. and that's it's it, you know it's it's just conscious, I think, self-examined life. A conscious, aware, self-examined life is what I'm really trying to get toward yeah, across absolutely. the board. Absolutely. That's a, that's, a, that's a quote by Socrates. A life unexamined is a life not worth living. Mm. And I couldn't, agree, I couldn't agree more with that, yeah. with that sentiment. You know? And that's, um, I guess, the scientific mode with which 
not only I've approached my life, like I, I see, you know, I don't mean this, this is not hyperbole. Mm. I genuinely view my existence as a science experiment that I'm, that I have the opportunity to conduct on myself. And that's how I've, that is literally how I've approached probably the last 20 or so years of my 30 or so years of existence. Mm. That has been a, a really deep, it's, it's like, okay, what happens if I do this and how do I find the, the outside of that, which is also what's led my, my passion for data and tracking and everything like mm. that. Cause I'm like, well, you, you know, if you're going to do a science experiment, you're at least got to work it out. Right. Yeah. You, well, you can't manage what you don't measure. Right. You know, exactly. You're tapping into the scientists in me. I mean, the other thing about that, Goose, that's important is okay. If your life's an experiment, but also it's an expression, it's an expression of your vision of humanity. You yes. are a human being, you represent human beings and your choices represent your vision of what humanity can be. So this is a start quote and it's a good one. It's one I love. When you choose for yourself, you choose for all mankind, right? <laughs> you can't, and you can't escape that responsibility. You cannot escape. You say, you say that quote again. Can you just say that quote again? When you choose for yourself, you choose for all mankind. Boom. That is that's yeah. a ton of bricks. Yeah. And that's the moral responsibility, the moral dimension to our individual choices. That's okay. So who do you, who do you, like, where do you look for inspiration, leadership? Like, where do you, because you can't, like, every, everyone, everyone has figures that they look towards. Who's, who are yours? Yeah. Um, I mean, my parents are definitely right up the top. Um, That's and, good. You know, it's a lot of people, it's their parents. It's definitely the parents for me. Um, they gave me everything I have, taught me everything, and especially morally. You know, they're very moral people. They're, they're deep thinkers. Uh, aside from them, uh, actually, my boss, my current boss at my work, Stuart Higgins, is a, just an inspiration. He's a, he's, a deep, he's probably the most emotionally intelligent person I've ever worked for in my life. And uh, he thinks very deeply about ideas. He's very consultative. Uh, I like that a lot. But then I also, I, I'm not a... I'm not a big reader of philosophy anymore. I did study it when I was younger. I mentioned Sartre before. It's probably had a bit of influence on my moral thinking. Um, and I'm a, actually a really, really, really big fan of Sam Harris, um, who's kind of a philosopher, neuroscientist, um, uh, thinker, podcaster, author. And so I read a lot of his stuff and listen to a lot of what he has to say as well. Um, yeah, there are probably some... Some rapid nice. fires. I actually, I'm not familiar with Sam Harris, so I'll, I'll look up Sam Harris. Get into it. Okay. Into so, it. okay. Before we wrap up though, so you bought one property now. Yeah. Where, like, you want to keep building a portfolio? Is yeah. it like one and done? Nah. What you've, you've obviously done a lot of um, uh, visioning about how you want your life. Like, where do you want to go on your property journey? Property specifically... Well, I bought, as I mentioned, it was a pretty low price property that I bought. I co-invested with my mother. Um, so I'd like to buy one on my own, maybe at a higher price point as well. Um, I see property, it's like an engine for wealth creation, right? Um, there's, there's a service element there, but it's not for me, it's not about like, I want to replace my income and retire early. Like that's not my vision. I love working, you know, and I wouldn't stop. I don't want to stop. Uh, for me, it's about that capacity. What does that enable you to do? So I want to build my property portfolio over the course of my lifetime. 
uh, and the kind of end point is, has got nothing to do with how many properties, it's got nothing to do with a number in my bank account and everything to do with what I can do with that wealth for my community. For my, so it starts with looking after myself, which I'm thankful I can already do, then family and then and friends, like you said, those circles, but then community. And I guess my long-term goal in this journey is to be able to fund the arts, sciences and conservation of the environment through the wealth and, you know, prosperity that I'm lucky enough to experience in my life. And not just with me, but also as with my family. So working on that together, that's, that's actually a collective goal that we have is to start a foundation that gives grants to arts, sciences and conservation. That's awesome. That is so good. I'm so aligned with that. Awesome, man. I have, uh, man, this has been, this has definitely been a very uh, insightful and impactful uh, episode. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of gold nuggets, a lot of takeaways uh, out of this one. So what, if, if people want to like listen to your podcast or anything like that, what's the best way that they can uh, reach out to you there or how can they get in touch with that? Because there's obviously a lot going on in that, uh, that engine room between your ears. And I think people will get a lot out of, out of joining that conversation too. Yeah, um, so if people are interested, uh, the podcast, as Goose said, is called Binge Thinking or Binge Thinking Podcast. You just Google Binge Thinking Podcast, you'll find us. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Um, not hard to find on any of those platforms. Uh, you can just listen off our website. We, everything's downloadable. But obviously, if you've got a podcast app of any kind at all, or you have Spotify, just look for Binge Thinking Podcast, you'll find it. So that's, that's the easiest way. And you know, if you like it, you can always contact us and suggest a topic or a guest or whatever. So that's, yeah, it's all there in the internet. It's fairly easy to find. And, and also, if you're fascinated about hearing um, a previous Goose, back when it had a big beard, weighed about mm-hmm. 30 kilos heavier and was producing a uh, producing a music festival, dig back into the earlier episodes and uh, and let me know what you think. Yeah, I think, I think you were in the first like 10 or 15 episodes. So it's like really toward the start, but it was a great episode actually. And I think there's a photo of me cooking you a roast pork dinner um, when we were doing that recording so that's pretty nifty and I'll just give a little shout out because we've actually got Gabby your partner um, and the other half of the top tier of Dashdot um, coming on the show in uh, it might already be out by the time you release this episode of the Investor Lab so uh, you can also hear Gabby's story, which uh, I'm really excited about putting out. I yeah. am actually really, really excited to to hear that episode because I usually spend so much time talking and Gabby doesn't usually do much of the talking. She's a bit more introverted than I am. Mm. When I was busy working away, when she came out of that uh, that recording with you, she was you know beside herself with both uh, joy, elation, overwhelm, all kinds of stuff, and and it was long. It was long too. Mm. I am, I am, I am really looking forward to that episode coming out, and I'm definitely going to be tuning into that one. So, yeah, yeah. I, I I I walked away from that recording feeling pretty elated myself. It was, awesome. it was, it was beautiful. Yeah, awesome. which is what we like to do at binge thinking. Yeah, we get man. Deep. That's the that's the look. A good podcast is one that makes you feel. So <laughs> yeah. look, man. Um, Thanks for your time today. Thanks for your insights. I'd be very interested to um, to have you on again, maybe in a year's time or something like that, where we can check in on your personal wealth journey and how you're navigating the um, you know the ever churning river of millennial life, ethical opportunism, personal wealth development, and all of that kind of stuff. But I've thoroughly enjoyed our time today. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, Goose. It's been a real pleasure. 
could My pleasure. definitely do it again. Cool, man. Sweet. Thanks for your time.